Hello and welcome to Have You Seen It? I'm Emily. And I'm Ned. And each week we'll take you on a three-part cinematic adventure. We will be reviewing something currently in cinemas. A past or present wildcard. And something hot on a streaming service. So let us be your cinematic spirit guides. So you can stop scrolling. And start watching. So Emily, what did you see in the cinema this week? So this week in the cinema, I went to see Knock at the Cabin, which is a new film from director M. Night Shyamalan. And it tells the story of this couple who are called Eric and Andrew. And they are on holiday in this cute little secluded cabin in the woods with their adopted daughter, Wen. Everything's going amazingly until four strangers show up at the cabin out of nowhere And they have all had the same vision that tells them that the guys in the cabin must choose one of their number to kill uh, because they've seen it in this vision and it's the only way that they can stop the uh, impending apocalypse. Wow, that's a lot of plot. I mean, I suppose that's what we should expect from M. Night Shyamalan. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) And I think it is time to say that this week is Spooky Week um, because completely coincidentally, we've picked three spooky films. Yeah. Um, What genre is it? Is it full horror? Is it psychological? Yeah, so it's thriller, horror. M. Night Shyamalan is famous for making films that have contemporary supernatural plots and twisty endings so you'll know him from things like sixth sense or old if you saw that recently so it's that sort of supernatural horror with Mm. often a lot of like questions he's not made a well-reviewed film since the mid-noughties early noughties i mean his big ones which were popular were the sixth sense Mm mm-hmm and then he made, what, Unbreakable with Bruce Willis, yep. which is, like, meant to be great. I've not seen it myself. Yeah. And then Signs was quite campy, but people loved. I yeah. remember being terrified of it yep. when I was a teenager. The Village as well. The Village, again, big twist. And then he's kind of not made a well-reviewed film since then. Yeah. Does this continue his bad run of form? Yes. Okay. I would say, so personally, I I really liked The Village when I watched it when I was like 14 or whatever. (laughs) Because of the ending, you're like, oh my God, didn't see that coming. Old, I really liked the concept of old. So it's like a group on a beach and they're aging really quickly and they can't really work out why. People say that old is the most stupid film they've ever seen, but weirdly compelling. Yes, I totally agree with that. Apparently like children um, like walk off in it and they... (laughs) They in the in the script, the children come back old, and immediately the the people just start filling in plot holes for the audience. So they're like, well, they must only get old like this because these are the rules, audience. So don't ask this question. Yes, yeah, exactly. And like it is. So I would say this isn't the best film I've ever seen, and it does fall victim of what seems to happen with his films that it's a great conceit, mm. like it's asking a lot of what ifs and questions but it never quite follows through and gives you the answers that you want so this is the thing when you said the plot i was like this sounds so up my street we've spoken quite a lot recently about films without a particular plot yeah and this one 
as we said, we were looking for one with loads of plot. There's a lot of plot. And, like, I feel that you basically, in describing the plot, you've probably actually only described the first 20 minutes. Yeah. And then does it become too complicated to follow? Yes. Not not necessarily to follow. I just think they're just kind of throwing a lot of stuff at it. So mm. you have this this Sophie's choice, essentially, for yeah. this same-sex couple, and they have to decide, are they going to kill one of each other? Are they going to kill the kid? And then you have these four crazy people coming into the house being like, the world's going to end unless you do this. And then they also weave in all this other stuff that get, it gets very philosophical mm. without kind of spoiling it. It gets quite religious. Mm. And the guys in the cabin, they don't have any access to the outside world. So they don't even know if what they're being told is real or not. So it's a lot of this, is it real? Is it not? If it is, what does that mean? And there's, And then there's this whole question because the it's a same-sex couple and they've dealt with a lot of kind of trauma in the past and prejudice and that's feeding into it so there's just like a lot going on and it never quite gets there what do you think holds it back the most um, is the acting good the acting's great so i would say amazing performances so we've got um, we've got David Batista, who oh, yeah, yeah. is amazing as this like gentle giant Leonard as one of the kind of four intruders. You've got uh, Harry Potter's own Rupert Grint. Great, great to see him back <laughs> in action. I was actually, I think we've said this with a lot of British actors who are like similar age to us. We're like, yeah, you, yeah. you go girl or Boy. you go Ron in this case. <laughs> Um, but yeah, really good performances across the board, especially the couple. So Eric and Andrew played by Ben Aldridge and Jonathan Groff. They have great chemistry. Mm. So the performances are there. It's just because there's too many questions being asked and too mm. much scenarioing. That's what's really holding it back. It's all questions and no answers. So it doesn't have time to breathe. No. And do you get to know the characters? Uh, Yes, I would say you do get to know the characters and you get like some backstories, especially to the couple and you you get to understand the motivations of them because it's a very small cast. It's just the conceit in which they're playing never Mm. fully plays out. Does M. Night Shyamalan put himself in? Yes, he does. And I spotted it. (laughs) I literally were in the cinema and I was like nudging Will, who I was with. And I was like, that's him. That's M. Night Shyamalan. They they, they do turn on the TV and there's an advert and it's like a shopping channel advert. And M. Night Shyamalan's the the seller on the shopping channel. He can't resist. So it's slightly different (laughs) to when, um, to Encaro Station, when the guy puts himself in as a pervert because no one else would play it. (laughs) My favourite M. Night Shyamalan thing is him putting himself in as an evil film critic that gets killed horribly in one of his films after a string of bad reviews in a few of his films. Oh my God. Is it pretentious? Not particularly pretentious. It could be more pretentious. And if it was more pretentious, maybe you'd get some answers out of it. Mm. I think because it's trying to be accessible and philosophical at the same time. Yeah. So it's like treading this like weird middle line that it doesn't quite... He really did nail it with a sixth sense, didn't he? I mean, that was a yeah. really like... Because in a way, you just kind of remember the... Or I just remember the like the child relationship with Bruce Willis yeah. and stuff. It's just terrifying. But like, yeah, it's got some horrible jumps yeah. and some proper proper moments which make you feel... Like, you can't trust anything. That Jaws thing of being scared of getting back in the water. Yeah. Okay. So who would you recommend this film to then? I would say if if you're a fan of, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, go for it. (laughs) Go see it. I wouldn't recommend it to that many people. (laughs) Because (laughs) if you don't like horror, if you don't like, you know, 
questions, unanswered questions. It wasn't the best film I've seen. I wouldn't see it in the cinema personally again. I would, if it was on a streaming service and it was like Halloween, I might watch it, but it's yeah. not, I wouldn't rush, rush to go and see it. How scary was it? Mm. it? It was a bit like nerve shredding, sort of, because you're a bit like, oh, like who are these people? What's yeah. happening? But it's not like jump scares. There is quite a lot of blood. It's quite gory. Mm. Um, so that's a you know, tr- so on trigger our, warning. On our spook, <laughs> spooky week spookometer on a scale of one to 10 spooks. Mm. It's definitely not the spookiest film we watched this week. <laughs> about, a, about a five. Five out of spook, mm. okay. The reflection of a coat rack that you think is a person for a second, yeah. but then realise yeah. straight away it's yeah. not. It's such a shame that it doesn't work. Yeah. Because I don't think I'll be going to cinema to see this. But should I find myself at a pay-what-you-want cinema, how much do you think a ticket would be worth? I just... I don't know, like two pounds. Like it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. You know. Two pounds with free popcorn. Yeah, with some like pick and mix thrown in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so this week, what have you picked for us with your pretentious pick, Ned? So this week, I went for the Italian film mm-hmm. Suspiria. It turns out Suspiria is all in English. What is Suspiria about? So Suspiria is about a ballet school in 1970s West Germany where some murders and some scary things are happening. It's kind of a mix between a haunted house story, a ghost story, a witch story, a slasher. It is unbelievably influential and I would say it is as far from black and white as it's possible for a film to be. Yeah. Emily. Did you enjoy it? So I was, I'm not going to say thrilled, because I love black and white, old and so subtitled films. So she was a big of... fan. But I was very, very interested to watch Suspiria because I'd never seen it. I'd obviously read about the Luca Guadagnino remake, which was fairly recent and was mm. absolutely destroyed by the critics. So going into this, I was, I was pretty, I was buzzing for it. I was not expecting the crazy, gory, psycho drama that unfolded. Um, Did I enjoy it? I think enjoy would be a difficult word to use, but I was intrigued, entertained and compelled by this technicolor gothic fairy tale madness. Yeah, well, so that's really interesting because going into it, I'd never seen it before. I always wanted to see it going into it. I'd only ever read about the colour that is used in it, which is so distinctive. They use red. Basically, all scenes have red in it, but really block red. I'd only really seen the really kind of arresting shots. And I don't think I realised how fun it would be. Yeah. Going into it, just knowing the weird elements of it, what you end up seeing is a pretty enjoyable slasher. Yeah. With this incredible colour palette shot in this incredible way but I it's interesting you saying going into it kind of slightly more blank slate on the weirdness Mm. it's the weirdness that gets you it's available on Prime by the way for free Amazon Prime yeah which was great and it's it's quite a good length I would say yeah it's about 90 minutes Um, could you associate with any of the characters I would say that having gone to an all-girls boarding school, this film mm. was very triggering for me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say that I would associate with Jessica Harper's Susie Banyan character, who's the protagonist, but I definitely felt that feeling of 
being a new girl and mm. that sort of female energy of when you feel out of place yeah. and that sort of vibe, which can be a bit toxic. Yeah. And there is a bit of that and the girls all kind of sizing each other up, especially when she arrives and she's a bit of an outsider. And obviously it kind of becomes clear why, you know, especially the teachers don't like her. Um, but it, there's a lot of that that was what I sort of could associate with, I guess. So it's interesting. I didn't think she was as badly treated as how she necessarily reacted. And I think that there is a small are chance... You, are you victim-blaming her? Yeah. <laughs> well, to an extent, no. But I think there's a small chance that there's a bit of ambiguity with the ending. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, mm. but what happens... 30 seconds before the credits start rolling yeah. give you one idea of what of how you think you should read the ending. Oh, that's so but interesting. Then the, when the credits start rolling, yeah. you hear and see stuff where you're like, wait, is this, is this what I think it is? Is this good or is this bad? <laughs> and I suppose that leaves it vague enough for anyone watching to, to draw their own conclusions. That's so interesting. Can we talk about the ending quickly? Because yeah. we're not, no spoilers. But so I, not a massive horror fa- fan, but when I was reading about Suspiria, um, about the influencers and all this sort of things, one thing I came across was this article about the ending and about how a lot of horror films have this thing at the end called the final girl trope. Mm. And it's where in all, not all horror films, but a lot of horror films, you have this sort of pure, perfect protagonist mm. who is the last man standing essentially within the bloodbath. And often... Mm they leave at the end and they're sort of beaten down and um, kind of very much traumatised by what they've been through, Um, you know, crying, you know, all this sort of thing. But with the ending of Suspiria... This is spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) No, but we're not going to say exactly what happens. The ending is the opposite of that in a way. Like, she's leaving... Yeah. And she's got that kind of bit of a, like, cheeky smile. Well, that's what I mean in a way, where you're like, what what just... What happened? happened? Yeah. And, and it, this is interesting within the like canon of horror films. This is unique in its final girl trope. Yeah. From what I could see. And it sort of twists that on its head a little bit. So it really makes the rest of the film quite ambiguous, like you're saying. Yeah. Like, what, what just happened? Okay. So I'm going to make Ned's pretentious point about Ned's, Ned's pretentious pick. This is where <laughs> I read too much into it. Or as things usually turn out, make an incredibly obvious point that everyone understands. So I think the film, the film is basically about Europe. In the mid-70s, both Germany and Italy were going through a period of um, communist terror. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why red, one of the reasons red's so important. I also think there's a lot of like, um, references to like, femininity mm-hmm. and the fact they're mm-hmm. growing up and like, blood and, mm. and all of that stuff. But there's one major set piece where somebody gets killed in a very neo-colonial German square. And I'm pretty sure in one of those buildings there is a Holocaust memorial. So I think there's a lot of stuff in the film which is like dealing with Europe's trauma. There's a lot of stuff about Europe as a continent being quite dark and Mm -hmm. being quite uh, nasty. And there's this American main character who comes in who comes in (laughs) and the way she deals with the violence inherent is not what you usually it's not like hostile as you say it's a flipping of this trope it's not 
it's almost like she embraces the violence and benefits from it, which is potentially a what happened with America after you know they made their money, they rebounded from the financial crash from the Second World War. So there's this weird Europe stuff. Mm. There's this weird like mysterious stuff, and the fact that. You know, she's called this, like, American bitch quite a lot. So it's not unlike Emily in Paris in a lot of ways, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> it is, like, a less horrifyingly bleak version of Emily in Paris. <laughs> no, I think I think that's an interesting point, especially about the, yeah, the American in West Germany and the ensuing chaos. Have you seen, have you seen any of the remake? No. Okay, what would you say the most important thing to get right about this film if you're remaking it would be? I want to say the colour. Yeah, okay. So I watched 10 minutes of a remake. For a start, the remake is somehow two and a half hours rather than one and a half hours long, which I'm like, don't add an hour onto this film. It, it works really well. Doesn't need it. It doesn't need it. Uh, the second thing is, it is really grey. Mm. I looked into it, and apparently the director said, oh, to separate it from the original, I wanted to add some wintry tones. <laughs> oh, no. so, <laughs> <laughs> this film is basically uh, an excuse to show colour on screen that in really, a really arresting way. That really upsets me because I love Luca Guadagnino and he's obviously like famous for things like Call Me By Your Name, which are you know luscious and beautiful yeah. and all these things. I think that's partly why I don't want to watch the remake because mm. I just love him too much and I can't do it to myself. He basically takes the dance element of it, which is quite a small part of it, the fact it's yeah. in a ballet school, really and makes it like the point of the entire film. Oh my God. It's all about this modern dance interpretation. Mm. It's the, the 10 minutes I watched, I just thought, just watch the original. Yeah. Where would you put it on the spookometer? Ooh, I was pretty spooked. Like... Mm. Also, they, there's no, you know, tiptoeing into it. The first few scenes are bloody and aggressive and very violent. Yeah. As she arrives, it's kind of like straight in there, boom. And it's, it's like a, an eight or a nine out of ten. I yeah. Just, I'm not sure I could handle watching it again in the near future. Do you think this is a film people who aren't massive horror people could watch? No. Really? Yeah. I think to watch this film, you've got to be a fan of horror. You've got to be looking to explore <laughs> Dario Argento's portfolio. <laughs> or, you know, you've got to be interested by the aesthetic. I just don't, like, it's not, it's not for a beginner horror fan. That's so interesting. Like, I have friends who won't even watch Hocus Pocus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that I don't think a lot of people can handle this. I think because of a slasher element, and that's a horror which I'm most relaxed with for some reason. <laughs> um that I was, I was kind of better with it because it's like exciting. Mm. So I can think about how exciting it is. But yeah, I did. Now I think about it, I did have to take my headphones off a couple of times. Yeah, the music is terrifying. Yeah, as well. let's talk about the music because it's obviously very curated in its aesthetic and the colours mm. and the the setting and the sets. And we can talk a bit about the inspiration there in a minute. But it's famous for the music of Goblin. Yeah, and. That I was not famous. I was famous. I was not familiar with Goblin <laughs> before yeah. I watched this. But it's very like electro, like jarring with mm. the action. And I think Argento and Goblin sort of work together on a few films, so yeah. it's kind of a partnership. But it's it's very like, 
and really jarring and it really heightens the intensity of it. Yeah, it really I and mean, it brings in all these different noises and additional music. So there's yeah. some parts which sound like a Greek prayer, there's some parts which are kind of like a Spanish guitar, there's some parts which are the loop and it brings it all together. And again, yeah. this is this European thing, but also uniquely weird in the seventies. Yeah. The aesthetic is just amazing. Like it's in next level. Yeah. the set design. Yeah, it's so cool. Some of them I was like, oh, put that on my Pinterest board for my house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the wallpaper, especially in like the principal's office. What were the inspirations, do you think? So two, two key ones were, that I read about were um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, yeah. So um, the German kind of expressionism from cabinet of Dr. Caligari, like dreams, unreality, psychoanalysis, provocations. Like you've got all of the rigid sets and it's all very curated mm. and there's that weird dream-like element to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari yeah. that Argento really drew from. And also... Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Mm. So that was a big one. And obviously, when you're looking into the film, it's like, oh, she's Snow White and the principal is the Wicked Witch. And it's got those bright colours that you have of Snow White. So there's a lot of the reds and the blues and the greens. And it's those sort of dark and light and the kind of velvety textures that you have sort of throughout Suspiria that he drew from Snow White as well. For a film where the entire thing feels like a dream sequence there are no dream sequences in it no yeah that's so true and I think that the reason you you have to think about it to remember there are no dream sequences is because it's all rooted in this snow white stuff because it feels like a dream but it's not yeah yeah I loved it I really loved it actually Um, yeah no same I I, and the more I talk about it now I'm actually I'm like okay I need to like take a minute and then I could watch it again where in a film education course, would you watch it? On what stage of the film education? So, um, after the doc, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and yeah. that's usually... I've never seen that, by the way. <laughs> come on, Ned. That's usually a sort of sixth form film studies film. Mm. So maybe you slip it in as the like cheeky end of term treat for your A-level students before they go mm, off to uni. It's quite violent though. You're going oh, to it is an 18 though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mm. think it would be uni. I think it would be like a couple of weeks of uni when you're First, getting yeah. into the grips. Yeah. You've established the basics and it's like, right, you've established the basics. Mm. Here's something really different and weird. Yeah, let's go with that. I think yeah. you're right. I was trying to show it to underage students there. <laughs> um, also, I don't know if about you, but when I watched it on Amazon Prime, it flashed up at the beginning and it was like 18 and it was said <laughs> uh, violence and smoking yeah, yeah. <laughs> as the trigger warning. But there's only like one scene where somebody smokes yeah. now. It's like a really small yeah. part. Anyway. It's like, what is this world? Brilliant. Third and final, we have our hot off the press, our what's hot right now. And Emily, what have you chosen this week? So this week I have chosen the show that is literally on fire right now. So on fire that it hasn't even finished the season yet. Uh, And it is, of course, The Last of Us, which if you're in the UK like us, you can watch on Now TV. Now, I am delighted you picked this. But can you explain what it's about first? Yes. So The Last of Us is based on a 2013 video game. And it's a post-apocalyptic 
drama series set in 2023, 20, 20 years after a pandemic caused by a mass fungal infection, uh, which forces its hosts to transform into zombie-like creatures and essentially collapses society. And the series follows the two protagonists, which are Joel, played by Pedro Pascal, uh, and Ellie, who's played by Bella Ramsey. And he is a smuggler tasked with escorting her uh, across this sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland to safety, essentially. So I'm really glad you picked this because the game is one of my favourite pieces of storytelling ever, if that makes sense. I mean, if I was to take films, games, TV, Mm -hmm. books... The experience of playing that game was one of the best experiences I've had playing games. I love single-player games. I love games with storyline. This one kind of elevated that. Really? I personally thought they are absolutely smashing it in a way that is worth the remake. Mm -hmm. So normal people I spoke about last week, I don't think it was worth the remake because they just remade it exactly as it was... And I don't think it really hit the same emotional beats. Yeah. As someone who I'm guessing has never played the game, are you enjoying it? Oh my God, I'm loving it. And for me, it ticks a lot of boxes. Mm. So (laughs) I love a zombie film. (laughs) Um, But I also love, you know, the kind of journey concept, post-apocalypse concept, all that sort of thing. But I think what they've done here is they've created something that is thrilling and terrifying and you know it's an emotional roller coaster but it also has real heart to it and that bond between the characters of Joel and Ellie is so you know it's just so lovely to watch it evolve without being like cheesy or corny or any of those things so you're really rooting for them in this very kind of crazed landscape it's it's so bleak and it manages to bring out Mm -hmm. so much beauty before so regularly destroying everything yeah you know it is was it somebody was saying that in the first half an hour of the first episode something very very tragic happens something traumatizing happens somebody said oh well something that level of traumatizing happens every single episode it does it does yeah and you're never even if you see it coming you're never ready for it um, the game actually really this sounds over the top, but really influenced how I saw the world, because I think what it does, the game does really well, is it brings out all the natural beauty and natural life in the world, which mm-hmm. in a way goes hand in hand with the fungus theme. And this is one of the things which I think separates it from a zombie film, because the fungus is a living mm. organism. Rather, and it's horrifying. It's disgusting. It's the enemy, but it's also just trying to live. And it makes it a bit different to the undead. It shows that kind of other side. It's not just like this horrible like zombie apocalypse. It's you, you can understand why people are doing these horrible things. Did you watch The Walking Dead? Because I think this is the opposite. I think The Walking Dead is just bleak. Mm. And it's just grey and depressing. Yeah. And it's all about maybe zombies aren't the real villains. Maybe it's humans. Yeah. Whereas I think what this does so well is it makes the humans really scared Mm. and it makes their horrifying actions more human as a result. Like, it really brings out the fear. So, like, in the first episode, a soldier follows orders in a very tragic way. 
And you're just like, well, you can kind of get why he's doing it. Yeah, you can totally empathise with it. Um, what I think is really nice about this as well is that, again, it's a bit like knock at the cabin. It's that like what if scenario. And you're mm. always like putting yourself in that situation. But it's so nice that they, they don't always just focus on Joel and Ellie. The, there's an amazing episode is episode three where it's that that survivalist mm. and his partner. And they're living in this pocket of perfection and it's really lovely and they're like growing strawberries together yeah. and like living this like really wholesome life and it's sort of that there are in the midst of all of this awfulness there's still pockets of humanity mm. who are you know loving each other and looking after each other yeah and it's it's really nice to see that other side of the apocalypse it's not just like people killing each other it's got so many layers whilst all these humans are are making these constant decisions it's interesting actually about putting in the shoes now I think about it, there are so many decisions in each episode. Yeah. And it's a really, it's not a game. Some games you have choices and the ending changes depending on the choices you make throughout the game. This isn't one of them, but it almost feels like it is. Do you like the way it's shot? Yeah. And I feel like being, you know, the Gen Z or I am, I've seen a lot of TikTok videos where they've put side by side the game and mm. the show. And it's literally like shot for shot the same. And I think that's really interesting that they're staying so true to it. But we, we were watching it last night and I was literally saying the, the set is incredible. Mm. Like the detail that they've gone into and creating these huge, or maybe a lot of it's CGI, but recreating these huge cities where, you know, like you're saying, nature's fighting back and it's all very grim and very grey and very depressing. I just think it's stunning. Like yeah. I, really, I really love the world that they've built and it feels very believable. It's interesting he did Chernobyl, the, the, the writer of mm. Chernobyl before, which similarly takes something very post-apocalyptic or yeah. kind of during intra-apocalyptic and makes something oddly beautiful out of it. Where is it on the spookometer? Mm. I wouldn't say it's spooky. I'd say it's like more spooky than was it a six, maybe? I put it higher than, yeah. than Suspiria. Because yeah. Suspiria is so weird, whereas this I'm just like, because uh, I'm putting myself in the shoes you're so really much. like on edge I would ask you as, as a, a watcher of zombie content mm. if you were gonna you know your wife for example if you were gonna ease her into watching zombie content where would you put this like, I'd put this at the beginning I think yeah entry level I think entry level because it's not about the zombies and no. I think it's better for it I think I know the answer to this one but is it worth your time 100% and how bingeable on the bingeometer? Pretty hard. You you might not want to watch it all immediately, mm. but the next night you're like, right. Yeah, very bingeable. And I think because now TV or HBO or whoever the overlords are are releasing it week by week, which for someone living in this day and age is unbearable, yeah. <laughs> because I've been watching it week by week and I just want to binge it and I can't. Do you know what happens at the end? No. I've not, I've not gamed it. I have no idea. I, I'm not sure if I want to know because I think it's going to break my heart. Um, yeah, I, I love, I love it. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say. I think that's non-committal enough. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you, Ned. That is everything for today. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to give us a like, follow and subscribe and follow us on Instagram at haveyou.seenit.com.